Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast, pottering around the freewheeling coworker who doesn't want to kill, kill the mood of Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who consider the morning a waste if we haven't discovered at least six plots to murder us before lunchtime. My name is Sarah. I am joined, as always, <laughs> by my co-host BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? Sarah, you, you, you just summarized my psychology in ways I've just never pondered. I mean, you, you, you're just hitting an undercurrent of truth that I didn't even fully understand yet. Yes, I do think about murders before <laughs> breakfast. Well, we are we are past two. Well, now. murders against yes. you. I think there, there might be a lot of other people, and I might be one of them, of murders of other people that I might want to commit <laughs> after breakfast. Uh, Got to do it on, on a full two, two different types of people in the world. Um, so we are on... Chapter, what's our chapter number? Seven, 17, I believe. 17, Se- the four champions. 17, the four champions. So we are making our way along through uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And we have some segments that we do here. We have a rapid fire recap. BJ's Wizard Wheezes, Newbie's Notes with Spencer. We award house points. And then there are questions, queries, qualms, quibbles. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's enough cues. Yeah. You don't want to add more cues. You get enough as is. Yes. Um... So, are we but, ready for the for the recap? Well, Sarah, uh, last time around, you had an incredibly controversial moment for the judges of where they were faced with you know a buzzer beater kind of moment and they ruled against you. I know, and social How media has been a flame in my well, defense. <laughs> I mean, I would say it's more of a uh, bludger. That yes, Spencer. No, I have nothing to say. Sarah, how long do you think this chapter's going to take you? It's a bit shorter. It is a bit shorter, although there is some... Yes, it's a bit shorter, but people are talking the entire time throughout the chapter, mm-hmm. which gets a little sideways sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. This is the chapter in which people explain things to each other and are sort of irritated. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, I am going to go for a cool 155 again. 155. And I do believe that I can get this actually under two minutes this time. We have the 155 bet within five seconds at either range of that in under two minutes. Timer is ready. Are you? Sure. Oh, Sorry, just resetting it. There we go. Okay. Everyone in the Great Hall is stunned, and Harry starts protesting immediately. Dumbledore calls him up, calls him up again and cryptically sends him into the antechamber where the other champions wait. They think he's been sent in as a messenger, which proves awkward until Ludo Bagman marches in, declaring Harry the fourth Triwizard Champion. Crom, Delacour, and Diggory are not pleased. Bagman's explanation is that, well, it's the rules. 87 other people burst in, and Madame Maxime and Professor Karkaroff are frothing at the mouth. Two Hogwarts champions is unthinkable, and they're blaming Dumbledore. Snape, however, is perfectly happy to blame Harry. Dumbledore dismisses this and questions Harry, who's as baffled as anyone. Karkaroff appeals to Bagman and Crouch as the impartial judges. Bagman demurs to Crouch, who uh, indicates that the rules say that if your name comes out of the goblet, you must compete. Karkaroff wants each school to have two champions, but the goblet is closed for business. Karkaroff stops, starts making threats until Moody comes in. His theory, uh, leveled at Karkaroff, is that someone put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire precisely in order to kill him. Karkaroff and Maxime scoff at the idea, but Moody insists that it must have been a powerful wizard to have hoodwinked the Goblet of Fire, certainly not a fourth-year student. Moody says it's his job to think like dark wizards. 
pointedly, he says this at Karkaroff. Dumbledore uh, doesn't see any other option. Harry's got to compete. So Crouch, looking ill, uh, lays out the first task, a task of daring to take place in about a month. They can't get help and they don't have to take end of term exams. That's about all the instruction they get here. And then the meeting breaks up. Harry and Cedric leave, and Cedric certainly believes Harry put his own name in. Harry can't wait to get back to Ron and Hermione, who might actually believe him. He ponders Moody's theory and immediately remembers his dream about Voldemort and his plans, but when he gets back to the Gryffindor common room, he's met by a huge celebration. Fred and George have arranged a feast, and Harry spends the rest of the evening explaining that he didn't put his name in. He finally breaks away to find Ron in the dormitory, but he's acting very oddly. Ron absolutely believes that Harry found a way to enter the tournament, and that he did it specifically without telling Ron or letting him in on the secret. He yanks his bed hangings closed, leaving Harry baffled and angry. Perfectly right. done. One fifty-seven fifty. All right, I think I'm on it. I did have to hold a cat back in the in the interim. <laughs> I paid that cat good money to interfere better than he did. Um, so yeah, a very um, uh, talking heavy, d- accusatory heavy chapter we have here. Yeah. Bj, what are you wheezing about? Um. I'm actually not wheezing about a lot this chapter. Um, It was a chatting chapter and not anybody in particular saying anything particularly interesting for the most part, I guess. Interesting Uh, to you, BJ. (laughs) Well, not interesting, like said in an interesting way, not like plot. My wheezes are not plot relevant. (laughs) They wouldn't be wheezes if they were plot relevant. Never were true words, BJ. Okay, sorry. Took me a second to get that one. Well said. Uh, So, I will wheeze about the writing of a French accent. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it was coming. (laughs) Um, Again, so, like, the interactions that J.K. Rowling has with the world fascinate me because it's like, it's, there's no way that she hasn't interacted with French people (laughs) in in her life and listened to them speak. Um, I would also presume that she might have read some things. Um, I mean, I think we have a very good reference material that our, we were doing in our quote-unquote parent podcast of Agatha Christie and the loads of French people that sort of end up in there mm-hmm. and how they're written. This is a... I'm pretty sure she was like, how to write an accent, came up with some German thing, <laughs> wrote that, and then was just like, wait a minute... I need to do some things to, like, make this clearly French, so I'm going to put in some French words there and drop some H's. And and that's going to be my French accent, I guess. What? Um, it, it's a wonderful point to bring up, BJ, and it's a wonderful point of comparison between how Agatha Christie does this versus how J.K. Rowling does this. And I think it's speaking to just two entirely different audiences. Like, Agatha Christie mm-hmm. will just write in French. No translation. Yes. She'll just sure. write in French. She assumes her audience is either bilingual, will understand, or will look it up. Mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling is playing purposely to the groundlings. She is playing for the funny foreigner trope. And I, right. I think that's an intentional call on her part. I think it also, too, I mean, I think that she is certainly playing for that. Um, there is no question about that. But I do think that there is something in how she has written, how she has written these French accents that like would practically make them easier for parents who are maybe not like super interested in doing right. accents. Yeah. Like if you just read them phonetically, you will at mm. least get an interesting accent for your kid. If you're reading these chapters out loud. That's true. Not, not clearly French though. I, I is, that, is what I'm that just is, trying to oh, yeah. That yeah. is like, fair. It's, yes. It's, it's aggressively uh, German. <laughs> it, 
Yeah, it's aggressively German until it flips into French. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, Spencer. Every so often you try and do a Russian accent that morphs <laughs> into a lot of other things. It goes so and, many places quickly. <laughs> and it's usually not perfect. Like, it's vaguely Russian, and then it just, like, makes a hard left turn. This is where I feel like, you know this accent is going well to be um, fair we do not know that um Bobaton is actually we do not know that Bobaton is in a sort of like parisian area of france it could be in that's true Alsace. That's oh true. we're going with fair fair enough fascinating uh, call. it's a border region guys <laughs> I, I i get it this I, i'm i'm this i'm on board with of- your geography i am not on board with your retconning <laughs> I love the historical implications of this, is that this was why France was so pissed after the Franco-Prussian War, because yes. they lost Beaubatons. <laughs> it they was were ready to fight, a German school. They yeah. were ready to fight World War One again, because they were not losing their magical university. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the other thing that I do find of kind of fi- find fairly funny, like it, it's an interesting thing, where there is a very clear accent for Madame Maxine. And not for Cockroft. Yes. <laughs> and it's just like, of the two, one of them is probably going to have a very pronounced accent and maybe not speak English super well, and it's probably not going to be the French person. Um, I will say that in terms of like the likelihood that general people will know a reasonable amount of French, I think that there's a generational thing there. Um, so, and my favorite thing, and I, I'm almost positive i brought it up on this podcast if not other podcasts that we do um is the term lingua franca Mm -hmm. and that english is now lingua franca is like my favorite thing ever because it's a weird word basically saying that french is the language that everybody knows but it's now english (laughs) if you want to just summarize a point that just frustrates modern french people to their core I think you hit on it right there, BJ. <laughs> that English is the lingua franca. That keeps French people up at night. Mm-hmm. Um, um, also that we don't have rules for our language. but Or legislation. <laughs> but, anything else, BJ? Um, no, I think that's uh, most of what I have for, for this chapter. And I'll probably uh, join in on Newbie's notes every so often. Okay. Well, first thing first for Newbie's notes. I really like the starter image for this chapter. Of where it's the image it's the image of Harry with just the long shadow stretching before him with him just kind of staring mm-hmm. off in the mm-hmm. distance. That's a fun image. There's a lot of weight behind that. A lot of the images we see are just kind of funny or just represent a certain event. This doesn't appear in the chapter, but it embodies a lot of the feel of what he has right there. Yeah. So I also want to point out, and this chapter picture does not help, that they're fifteen, sixteen. Yeah, he should he right? should yeah. be fifteen. I think that the he's you, I think it gets, um, you hear it more in the earlier books, but he, like, continues to be, like, pretty squirrely, um, in stature. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, I remember that he's small, but, like, the, he does a look, lot of things surrounding, yeah. uh, Harry Potter, and, like, I wonder if maybe this is the book that, that we turn the corner on it a little mm-hmm. bit, but this is kind of like a Simpsons where, no one has gotten older, <laughs> even though they've progressed in grades. Yeah, the, the artwork has really always kept them looking about the same age. And I'll be curious to see mm-hmm. whether that updates as we go forward. Yeah. Uh, another thing I really love is I really like the imagery that's being painted of that scene of when Harry first walks into that room with the other champions and they're all around the fire and they're all described together with no dialogue. It's just setting up the scene. 
It's a really mm-hmm. effective bit of painting that she does there. I like it quite a bit. Yeah, and that and it, that really highlights how much, at least Harry feels how much older and more mature these kids are yeah. than than he is. Right, and I I love his focus there too. For his first thought is just how tall they are, mm-hmm. which is such an accurate kid response <laughs> to that kind of moment. It's not that they're older. It's not that they're more mature. It's my God, they're all so tall. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I also, re- I would have been right on the same page as the other headmasters. I love that their immediate suspicion is that Dumbledore did this. It's that they're both on the same page right away is that, well, obviously this is something that Dumbledore has pulled off and arranged. Du- they don't even need to have a second thought on the subject. Clearly Dumbledore did this. It takes the weight of everybody else in the room to convince them that's not the case, and I still don't think by the end they're fully on the same page. <laughs> oh, no, there's no way. And it's also really weird. It's like, we're going to have a bunch of impartial judges of this multinational thing. They're all going to be English. Yeah. And, I mean, that might be the most English thing ever. Like, we're going to have impartial judges, but there are. Yes. And it's even better, and this is my next point, the impartial judges are utterly powerless. This is the system yes. that they've devised of where clearly things have gone off the rail. This is mm-hmm. not what they planned on. This is obviously what they've literally restructured the rules to prevent. But their response to that is, eh, rules. <laughs> I, I, though I'm the enforcer and interpreter of the rules, I am utterly powerless in this situation. My apologies. It's like... That is convenient. That is convenient. <laughs> I can fully understand why the other headmasters are legitimately, for like eight pages, really, really pissed. I really like that, too, is that they're not just rolling with it. They're very much unhappy with what happened. They mm-hmm. rightfully don't feel it's fair. Um, also, Mad-Eye Moody, I think he just read the plot. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like, Maybe a little bit. It's like his read there on the situation about, no, he, he steps in, calls everybody an idiot and says, no, obviously someone's trying to kill Harry Potter. <laughs> it's like, okay, either A, you're really smart, or you've just read the prior books and are applying the knowledge from that. Yes. <laughs> that's the most... Moody is all of us in this situation. Because <laughs> that's the most accurate character read we've ever had from any character in this series is just walk into a scenario and assume that the plot is being written around killing Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Well okay. done, Moody. Sure, but does Dumbledore... Well, we can ask this with questions later, but does Dumbledore want to kill Harry Potter? And I'm not clear <laughs> that, that the answer is no. Uh, and maybe we'll have a further discussion this with, with questions and queries. But um, before we get too much further... Like, there's this very weird, like, everybody knows stuff, but, like, none of it's clear to everybody in terms of, like, well, this is how the Goblet of Fire works. And so either, like, the heads of the schools know this mm-hmm. or they don't. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's a very, like, every, I feel like everything could be tested. Everything could be figured out. Um, I also am thoroughly amused that the... Uh, Goblet of Fire is basically like a corpse flower. Um, <laughs> Only opens every few years. That's a, that's a fun description. Mm-hmm. The s- smell of rotten meat, I don't think they quite went into quite to the same degree, but you know. It, it reminds me to a bit of those book series I've, I've read and quite liked, of where the main character, whenever they're going being on, on a deployment on assignment, gets a written series of instructions, of background, of information, of objectives, but then just consciously just never reads them. And so mm-hmm. it sets up the author having other people explain it to the character. But realistically, yes, he'd have all the instructions. But he just can't be arsed to read them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
I almost feel like that there for all the other professors. They got a pamphlet. They got very much a written instructions prepared by the Ministry of Magic. But it was a short flight, and there was other <laughs> things to do, you know. So, uh, but the other thing is, like, if this is always called the Triwizard Tournament, which I'm not clear about and might be questions later, it's like, is there enough headmaster turnover? I mean, it's only been a couple of years since they last did this, and so... It's or, been a long no, time. No, it's been a, been a few Oh, hundred. it's been since the, uh, the Wizarding War? Yeah. I uh, know it's been... Yeah. Well, it, it, the last time they did the Triwizard Tournament, I thought it was hundreds of years in the past. Didn't they say that? I think so. I mean, it's been like, it's like a generational thing. I'm not even sure that like, to your point, Spencer, I'm not sure that um, even the parents' generation have like seen any of this. Okay. Okay. That that makes a lot more sense. So, so this is a, like the first couple of times they ran the Olympics and it's just like, (laughs) well, (laughs) we'll figure out some rules. This is the Athens Olympics in the late 1800s of where, okay, we literally haven't done this since like 500 AD. Sure. Run, just run. That's, that, that, that's our event. We have no no idea what to do. I mean, I guess you need to be clothed this time. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. You, I, I just looked it up. It's on the Harry Potter wiki. Um, the tournament had not been held since the 1790s. Okay. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. So no one's alive. Like no one has like a memory of (laughs) maybe Dumbledore. So so they don't really have agreed upon rules. Yeah. They're, they're a moldy old text that they've been reading and vaguely applying with updates to try to prevent as quite as much child murder this time. They're trying to figure out if they should go for an originalist, uh, interpretation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, one of the that also helps Moody's read is that it's a scene we are still unpacking to a certain degree, but in the prologue, we had Voldemort talk about that we're going to need to do something, it's going to need a sacrifice, and Harry Potter is in some way involved. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's actually, you know, connecting things that we didn't fully have yet, which, if so, again, kudos, this man is cued into the plot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, powerful quote that will probably require further unpacking is Moody turning to Karkarov and saying... It is my job to think the way dark wizards do, Karkaroff, as you ought to remember. And um, the fact that Dumbledore immediately interrupts is almost just warning signs saying, well, let's think about that later. Because we already had suspicions that Karkaroff was on Moody's murder list, because previously he, you know, stared at him for more than a few seconds, which is usually indications you're on Moody's murder list. Didn't we have, like, a little bit of, uh, like, interaction previously where the, it was just like, well, some yeah. people, yeah. Like, were under the spells, and some people weren't, mm-hmm. and then, like, Karkarov was, like, associated with that back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, same scene, but I'd actually completely kind of put out of my head that Dumbledore just loves calling people their first name. It's like, that's his standard means of communicating with people, is I don't even know if he knows people's last names, <laughs> but he just speaks in first names, so... Yes. Alistair Moody instead, or Alistair. And I yeah. love how startled Harry is by that, like, oh, of course. It's like, well, Who I guess his first name isn't uh, Mad-Eye, that makes sense he wasn't baptized mad eye moody <laughs> <laughs> oh man Whew. that's parents set you in a direction in life if that's the one they put on the certificate yeah speak it into being yeah. i guess i don't know <laughs> um another thing i really appreciate about this chapter is what i like to refer to as npc frustration of where we, we, we finally get somebody just looking at harry and just saying dude this is fucking unfair why are yeah. you the main character and i'm not of where Kind of everybody's, you know, brief is happy for Harry, even though they all assume he's a lying sack of shit. But we get Ron essentially finally representing what would actually be, I feel, a much more accurate high school feel mm-hmm. of we're looking at this at, 
Why are you the golden boy? Why are you doing all these things? How did you pull this off? Why didn't you include me? I appreciate that because I feel like that's a more authentic read for how a lot of these kids would respond to the kind of obvious favoritism that Harry just runs in in the story. Even if they yeah. ultimately believe him that he didn't instigate this, the world did, mm-hmm. and that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like that we get Ron, of all people, just saying, being standoffishly jealous or feeling a little bit betrayed by what by what went down. I think it's, I mean, I guess my read on that was less, like, why do you get to do all these cool things, and more like, don't you understand how much I like hijinks? Like, why would, like, are we not friends? Yeah. Why would you not include me on this? Like, we've been under... Th- We've been under the invisibility cloak together. We've done all of, like, we've planned all of these things, like, as friends and usually as a group of three. Like, how could you not, like, in in this, you know, in this thing? You know, especially when my brothers already did this. It's it's a very intentional bit of plotting on J.K. Rowling's part that Hermione is not there. Mm -hmm. If she'd been there, she would have done what she always done and kind of smoothed ruffled feathers between the two and explain things but the fact that she mm-hmm. isn't allows it to end in a, what is a far darker and i feel more effective moment yeah yeah and there is certainly you know with this ending there's the potential for that to fester mm. yeah so i the other thing that i find interesting and i'm not sure which way i go on this um we actually have a mention of a powerful wizard object that may get used again i have a feeling it might be a key in some of the upcoming events but of the things that that we've listed in every other book that never come back again the invisibility cloak does seem to like come back around a couple of Mm -hmm. times and i wonder if like 99 percent of that is this is his dad's thing and so this was like a bequeath powerful wizardry thing and so it gets to come back and you get to sort of hearken to his parent rather than like a here are magical items that people can use and i will use it in the plot um so it's a little bit less of a Mm -hmm. one-off i I do um i I do too appreciate that it's a return magical artifact just because how much that ties back to the kind of myth and lore the story arises from that it's not just the the sword that arthur pulls out every now and then it's uther pendragon's sword and that kind of makes it much more powerful and meaningful uh other things that are very powerful and meaningful that just left me actually laughing out loud we get a return of weatherby and that's just great (laughs) (laughs) that was a fun callback that was a absolutely hilarious callback Percy just lives that now, and that's just the most wonderful thing ever. <laughs> so, have people, like, made a decision, or, like, am I in the minority that, like, Percy definitely gave this name as a, like, I don't want to be associated with my dad, and now it's coming back to bite him in the ass? You're the only person I've ever heard talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I have, like, little little mythos that, that I come up with, but... I feel like that's a little bit more reasonable. No, that one than, actually might um, have a little bit of... They're all dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I also really appreciate it. It's Barty Crouch. He's probably the most competent man in government. He's got a, a staff of people that he cares about. This is probably the kind of office of where Weasley has a friggin' nameplate at the edge of his desk. And still, Crouch cannot be bothered <laughs> to actually know this guy's name. No, no, no. He he got him the nameplate and it says Weatherby. Oh, God, even worse. <laughs> It was a gift that Weasley can't second guess him on. You can't, you can't correct it now. He is I mean, just also interesting that you bring that up, Spencer, that presumably he's competent and has a bunch of people working under them, under him. And then basically was like, well, I need to leave the office. Let's have 
the mailboy be in charge for now? <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> I think I'm willing to believe Percy Weasley's a couple steps above mailboy, at least in his own mind. But I like that Crouch, though he's put him in charge, cannot risk it to be gone for more than five minutes. It's like, nope, yeah. nope, I do not have time for a drink. Weatherby is in charge of the government right now. That can't stand for long. <laughs> Fires may just keep burning. Uh, also, I, I also sort of imagine him as the, like, he's he realizes he's left, he's leaving the office and hasn't, like, set up a proper, like, you're in charge. And Percy's the last person he sees before he walks out and just like, all right, until I get back, you're in charge. And then, like, oh, he God. got to Hogwarts and is just like, wait, Weatherby's in charge. <laughs> all right, like, I can't really stay that long, guys. Let's make this fast. Man, that's a fun thing. Where he's the new guy, so his desk is just closer to the door. Mm-hmm. So he was literally just walking out the door. So the first guy's like, "You're in charge. Don't call me." Just goes. Uh, other things that made me laugh. I think for the very first time ever, Harry actually raises a suspicion about where the plot is going, and may be right. That's never happened before. It's crazy, right? Like it feels very weird. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Harry, without prompting, without already having, you know, dark wizard spells being cast in him, immediately assumes, well, Voldemort probably did this. And he's right! Probably right! It's like, oh my god, you're growing up and I'm so proud of you for the next six minutes before you annoy me again. Because it's gonna happen. I know you can't sustain this too smart, this too clever of a thought for too long. <laughs> but for now, solid head pats. Well done, I Harry. mean... Right around now would be, like, the a good time for him to be like, oh, yeah, Dumbledore, can I have Dumbledore? There we go. Uh, sidebar, I had this dream about Voldemort, like, basically planning this exact thing, and then my scar really hurt. Is that a thing that I should worry about? Yep. No, yep. It, it, it's fine. Now, he's, I, I'm fully suspecting that even with this new knowledge, even with being admitted to the tournament, He's going to get another letter from Sirius Black and send him back another letter telling him to piss off and go home. That's just what Harry do. Mm-hmm. Apparently it works for him. He's not dead yet, despite <laughs> all threats to the contrary. A real high bar you're setting. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, if there were ever a character that embodied plot armor. <laughs> Hell, practically the, the cloak of invisibility is his plot armor. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but... Sarah, winners, losers for this chapter. We've got a few options, I think. Uh, yeah, although I think that there are distinctly more options for losers this chapter. The sheer number mm-hmm. of people yeah. who are unhappy at the end of this chapter. <laughs> high. Like, Very high. Yeah. For winner, I, I'd put forth Alistair. Yes. Alistair and Dumbledore are like probably my top two. I would put, I think that I would put Alistair up there. I think that you know, from the information that we have in this chapter, Dumbledore's feelings about the whole thing are still pretty opaque. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's sanguine to it, but he looked legitimately still caught off guard in a way we've not really seen him before. Yeah. Yes. I I have a... It doesn't follow the rules, so it, like, it, okay. it immediately... Mm-hmm. Disqualification, <laughs> but Percy... <laughs> That's actually not a bad call. He's in charge. Wow. I and He's in charge of a department. Yeah. And it might not have gone to shit. Well, Man. TBD, I suppose. Within the bounds of this chapter, it does not seem to have. Right. Oh God. Is, is Crouch going to come back and Percy's, like, actually started issuing policy or something? <laughs> like, he's not just holding down the fort. He's rewriting government while he's in place. No, no it's, it's so much better. He is 
taken everybody in the department to do cauldron thickness analysis. <laughs> it is getting done now. Um, I feel like our other option for winner is uh, options for winners are Fred and George who got to mm. hold an impromptu party in the dorm room, which is always a good night for them. They put it together quick too. Kudos. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, in the spirit of the winners and losers, I do think that mm-hmm. it has got to be one Alistair Mad-Eye Moody who got to limp into the room and be right about things. I think this chapter is also further proof that Alistair is just the master of inferences because mm-hmm. we got him to see previously arriving on a bolt of thunder kind of thing. I'm purely picturing him have a hobbled over fairly quickly and just waiting at the door for the perfect moment to just dramatically <laughs> enter. Yeah. If so, he, well he also is a very good, like, mic drop character. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to um, choose him loser, or uh, winner, I'm sorry. Loser, ooh, a lot of options. <laughs> Madame Maxime I mean, and we, Professor Karkarov, pissed. Very. Yeah, I, I think your analysis with Ron, like, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed if... I mean, Harry, Harry did, isn't in a great yeah, position, but... We don't really know the ramifications of this yet and how it's going to play out. We can probably assume that this is not going to be great for him going forward. But right now... I mean, now, he doesn't die, so... Yeah. I think, like, I, Ron is in such a state at the end of this. It's hard for me. Like, I, I realize he's being kind of shitty to Harry, but that doesn't really mitigate any of the, like, the deep jealousy and resentment he seems to be feeling at this point um Mm -hmm. it's a it's a rough night for ron so uh Mm -hmm. lost some house points there i think okay i I very very much agree i'd only offer as an honorable mention that the fact that weatherby exists is an albatross around percy's Percy's neck for all time (laughs) so once again (laughs) runner up winner and loser percy (laughs) Uh, uh questions do we does Dumbledore <laughs> want to kill Harry? <laughs> uh, Spencer, what, what questions do you have? Well, on that point, I feel that Dumbledore is very much the classic, the, the kind of teacher that believes that kind of constant threat of life of limb, that kind of constantly pushing yourself beyond any bounds that are reasonable or capable of, is how a person grows, mm-hmm. and has just taken that to the nth degree. So, does he want Harry to die? No. Does he want him to be under mortal threat? I think yes. Which, whether um, Dumbledore is, is, would that be your response to, like, whether Dumbledore actually orchestrated this or not, it's probably the reason he's allowing it to go forward? Yes. Yeah. I think Dumbledore has the power constantly to intervene to derail the plot, to probably make people better off in the short term, and consciously decides not to. But I think if, I, mm-hmm. Go ahead, sorry. The, the two people in question that were controlling things, one does not give a shit and doesn't want to even be there. And the two cares very much about it happening, but doesn't sweat the details. Mm-hmm, Dumbledore yeah. could have put a thumb on that scale and gotten any result he wanted. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I was going to say is, as we move forward, and like, I have some general knowledge as to where some things are going to be going, but like, I feel like Dumbledore knows a lot more about what's going on with Voldemort, and maybe that's why it's just like, no, like if we don't put Harry in moral danger on a regular basis, or at least the threat therein, like he is a hundred percent not going to survive in the next, not too long Voldemort coming out and killing Harry for unknown reasons. And with presumably somewhat known ramifications in the wizarding world. 
And I think that's sort of where the where that might come from, which is a little bit more reasonable, but right now it just seems a little like oddly capricious or not oddly capricious. But it seems very Dumbledore capricious. <laughs> yes. But dangerously capricious, yes. which Dumbledore d- doesn't seem to be with anybody else. Yes. I don't know if I've ever actually heard those two words paired together, but that's utterly perfect. That is the most accurate description of Dumbledore's character I've ever heard. Dangerously capricious. <laughs> well said. Uh, question from me. How much are the rules for Travers of Tournaments written in advance of each one, or is this very much a hidebound tradition kind of thing? I think my impression is that it's a hidebound tradition kind of thing. Um, I am furiously searching through the Triwizard Tournament entry on the Harry Potter wiki, because I actually have a related question for you, Spencer. Okay. Um, I can't help you much with with Harry Potter knowledge, but I'll try. Well, we have been we have been told that when your name comes out of the Goblet of Fire, that you are under a binding magical contract. Or actually, when you put your name into, I think it's when you put your name into the Goblet of Fire, you are under a binding magical contract. What do you think the terms of such a contract are, and how is it enforced, Spencer? Well, this is what's called kidnapping, and that's <laughs> a, and unless you're the U.S. military, that's a crime. Um, so yeah, there would be enforceability issues here with basically holding somebody against their, against their will to participate in a tournament of where death is so historically presumed, they've rewritten the rules to, to raise the age, the age minimum so as to avoid the sheer amount of demise among students. So yeah, there's some legal enforceability issues there, particularly when Dumbledore 100% fully believes that Harry didn't put his name in. (laughs) He didn't do it. He didn't sign the contract. His name is forged. There's authenticity and enforceability and authority issues in play here. So the, fa- the fact that Dumbledore is making Harry go through with this is really, the more I think about it, really massively fucked up. There's not an also, issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, and like to go on that, like we also get that the there was a powerful wizard that confused the Goblet of Fire. And like everybody realizes this. Mm-hmm. And shrugs like it, and keeps going. Right. It, like, if Harry's telling the truth, and if Dumbledore didn't succeed with his ultimately powerful spell, which is probably going to continue be being one of my frustrations to the end of this book, and maybe throughout all of the books, mm-hmm. that if the stupid spells that Dumbledore does are the most powerful spells, it's 100% on brand. But what is everybody else doing with their, with, with their <laughs> Leviosa bullshit? Oh, yeah. It's one of those things of where I agree. It's outright weird that we have Moody basically present that Voldemort did this. That's almost basically the implication of that conversation. And no one goes, well, we shouldn't let this happen then because this is clearly part of a dark wizard plot. No one says that. Everyone just goes, ah, nah, Dumbledore probably did this. (laughs) No, we understand trickery. We understand Dumbledore shenanigans. We live in that. Dark wizard stuff? Nah. I Let think they need a, needed a, a less batty messenger for the Voldemort plan. True. Sure. Well, or Karkarov's in, in on it, on it yeah. and Maxine is a little bit more familiar with Dumbledore and his shenanigans, and is just like, well, this kind of seems like a Dumbledore shenanigan. <laughs> well, the interesting or thing- just like the French-English hate, and it was just like, well, no. Well, it's interesting that Dumbledore doesn't intervene because he has full reason to believe Moody and probably is more better informed about Voldemort's actions than anybody else alive, which leads me to two conclusions. Conclusion number one, 
he's still willing to have the learning experience happen, even though the Dark One is the one that's instigating it. The learning experience cannot be stopped. Or, option number two, he now, now knowing or suspecting that there is a Dark Wizard plot here, he's letting it go forward so as to in some way thwart it, intervene it, or actually spring it. Which is possible too, but that involves a level of personal involvement by Dumbledore in anything that we've not really seen as much yet, so who could say? I mean, that's not an unreasonable theory because we have other things where Dumbledore sort of aids Harry in Dumbledore ex machina ways. <laughs> so, I like, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that it, that Dumbledore is like, let's do all of the most dangerous things while I can, like, make sure that Harry probably doesn't die most of the time. <laughs> We got another question, BJ? I actually only have one or two more. Uh, go for it. Um, based on how just utterly finagling and just randomly adjusting they are about the rules, if there's just like a sporting a sporting book that keeps track of sports records in the, in the Wizarding World, is it just like 90% asterisks? <laughs> is, is it just kind of thing? Of, I mean, picture the results at the end of this tournament. If one of the two, you know, champions win, particularly mm-hmm. if it's Harry... Are the other schools going to ever let that record stand without a massive asterisk on it? <laughs> probably, probably not. Uh, let's, let's be fair. Um, and let's, I would like to, so I told you that the last, speaking of, of asterisks, um, mm-hmm. the last of the Triwizard tournaments before the one that we are in, in now was in 1792. Mm-hmm. Um, and would you like to hear a description of the tournament from Hogwarts A History? Absolutely. Well, the heads of the participating schools are always on the panel because all three of them were injured during the tournament of 1792 when a cockatrice the champions were supposed to be catching went on the rampage. <laughs> okay. So that feels like an asterisk. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Actually, here's a follow-up question from that one. Help me unpack what details we get out of the first step. Yeah, because uh, we we get a description of the first ter- the, the first a- aspect of the tournament here, and it is a key part of it. That they can't know what it is in advance, right? Mm-hmm. And that they can only bring their wands. Yes, um, I think you've mentioned before that that kind of element of mystery is an integral part of how these steps go down. But are they all going to be structured in roughly the same manner, or is this one meant to be rather unique in that? You're shaking your head. So rather unique. Yeah, in that this one. Um... This one, the first task is the only, I can tell you, is the only one of the three where they don't have at least some clue as to what is coming gotcha. for them. Um, that, that implies personal to me. That, that, that suggests in some ways that, yeah, for, for me, that, that kind of vaguely implies personal. I, I don't know how they would really work that in. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bogart, like, there's personal magic that happens a lot, like the uh, whatever savior unicorn thing and... Uh, Whatever protects you from from the <laughs> okay yeah I got gotcha. you I don't remember the name of the spell Patronus yeah yes Patronus no, I, I, I was only confused Thank because they like we do actually see unicorns at some other point in time we do I will now no longer um, be able to think of the word Patronus without thinking personal unicorn thing <laughs> <laughs> um, but also the Bogarts and stuff like that where like the your interaction with whatever it is kind of defines like what happens and how personal it is. Are you kind of on the same page there, BJ, in terms of suspicions? Because that kind of, you, we can't tell you in advance, you can only go yourself, you can only bring your wand. That almost seems like it's a tailored kind of experience in a way I wasn't really expecting. That Like, I see either that or the, 
if they gave them more clues, they'd try and prep for it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, like, this is just a your character kind of thing rather than a, you know, ways to... I don't know, do some more push-ups or whatever to, to you know, overcome the obstacle you can't, kind of deal. You can't Hermione this problem. Right. And that's that's sort of where, like, that sort of led me. Okay. But, um, so, Sarah, we haven't asked questions about this in quite a while, um, but I am going to go back to it, which is paintings. What? So... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The bane it's of your existence. What, what more do we have to say about these paintings? Okay, so, uh, like, is there, like, are, are paintings, like, reasonably good about not talking to each other? Because, like, now we have somebody else that knows how to get into the, the Gryffindor uh, dorm rooms, which is supposed to be relatively secret from the other houses. And we also get, like, a lot of talking from the paintings, which is also, which is kind of weird because a lot of times we get, like, somebody whispered to Harry and then, like, nothing happens. Like, there's no dialogue there. There's just, like, this happened, by the way. I'm not going to tell you the dialogue. Um, and so I guess it's, um, the question is more, like, are the, can you protect paintings? In, in like a nobody else can enter, especially like if you're going to use a painting as a security measure. Yeah, and so remind me, because I know that the fat lady was talking about her friend Violet, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. would remind me of the sequence of events there. So Violet heard... Well, we, we get an initial scene with, I think it's Violet, that's in like the common room. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's in the room where the, where the other champions in are. The, yeah. The, right. The, paint, the paintings are kind of whispering each other, and mm-hmm. Violet jumps between a painting to talk with the guy with the big walrus mustache or something like that. Mm-hmm. And right. then the fat lady is there with Violet, who's run to go tell her what happened when Harry returns to the common room. Mm-hmm. And they have that kind of and, little... Mm-hmm. Right. And and so uh, Violet's like telling uh, the fat lady about about what's going on, and, and Harry says, balderdash, and... Like Violet gets all like pissed off about like no like I was telling the truth like what and it's like no 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 that's the right. password. Mm-hmm. Well, so what's the question? <laughs> yeah, where are we going? <laughs> like, so this seems like the biggest uh, loophole for security that you could possibly ever have, and especially for the Gryffindor common room. Um, well, I mean, like, is there a way to protect paintings or? Are, are you just, like, at the... Do you just never talk in front of paintings because they could be crazy and start, like, spouting stuff off? Like, Well, I mean, I think that, like, as far as we know, there aren't really paintings in the Gryffindor common room. Um, I mean, the fat lady and her comings and goings with her friends happen <laughs> at, uh, like, Sterling. are the doorway to it. But they don't know what's going on in the common room. Right, but like now, all of the paintings know the Gryffindor password, presumably. Oh, I see. oh, I see what you mean by security breach. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, like security breach there, don't. but also in general, yeah. like all the private meetings that you would ever have. I mean, I guess like you know, unlike universities and and stuff like that, you you can have closed door meetings because they're always observers. But like, it it's not a you wouldn't want to talk about any secrets ever. I mean, this is a school what. Sarah, remind me, what's the name of the knight that was the helpful kind of tour guide there in the prior book? Sir Cadigan. This is the school which puts Sir Cadigan as the door monitor there for a period. So 
they're not that concerned about data security, really. Yeah, I think it's just an accepted sure. cost of, of doing business. I mean, <laughs> clearly Dumbledore is having some secret meetings, presumably in his office, but he has all kinds of paintings in there that just, like, berate him sometimes. So <laughs> Does he just, like, turn them around? Like... Maybe. But throw a cloak over him like you do a, a yeah. parrot. Put, it, put a bird to sleep. It's, it's even better, too, since the paintings can move around. Dumbledore probably calls for council meetings of the paintings. It's mm-hmm. like, everybody, show up in my paintings at this hour yeah. on this given date. <laughs> but we don't see any instances of the paintings, like, giving away passwords. Oh, that's only Neville. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's all the questions from me. Okay. All right. Well, th- this has been fun. What chapter uh, do we Spencer, have next? you are going to be very confused at this next chapter, yeah. as I am. Yeah, I'm looking at the image here. And I'm again baffled at the kind of mixing of styles that just color the wizarding world. (laughs) We're in in chapter 18, The Weighing of the Wands. And I'm greeted by what appears to be a sassy 1980s marketing lady with a hovering hovering feather and scroll. (laughs) I don't don't know what to make of this. I don't see what's confusing about that, Spencer. That sentence alone didn't cause a gasket to blow in your mind. (laughs) It did to me. The the hairdo is is really where... Mm -hmm. Animals died for that much lard to go that were to arrange that hair. <laughs> I mean, this, this is like a 20s hairstyle. Yeah. But I'm excited to uh, discuss chapter 18 with you guys. Right. This has been fun, y'all. <laughs>